Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the first Dying Arts episode of the Three Ravens podcast, a series all about heritage crafts and forgotten arts. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm getting ready to warp my loom with the threads of the past and my co-host Martin Vaux is winding a fresh skein of wool for me. Hello! We spend our days here at Three Ravens delving into the stories and superstitions of England's folkloric past, but we're also very interested about how people spent their days before gathering round the fire to listen to a tale. Today there have been all sorts of books and articles written about the art of slow living, but it's easy to forget that intricate and time-consuming craft was the stuff of every day, all before the advent of smartphones and smart cars and smart legs. Smart legs? Yeah, surely there's got to be oh, smart legs. Sign me up for a pair when my knee finally gives up. <laughs> so this miniseries was partly inspired by my first encounter with the Radcliffe Trust's List of Endangered Crafts, mm-hmm. produced by the Heritage Craft Association. This is a fascinating resource, which details how endangered certain traditional crafts are in the UK today, ranking them into categories. And what are the categories? So there's five categories. Right. It's currently viable, endangered, critically endangered, extinct and data deficient. Oh, I feel a bit data deficient sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the categories are decided using a variety of criteria, but it's mostly to do with whether the crafts are still practised today right. and whether there are still any remaining skilled experts who could theoretically pass them along. And just to be clear, what does data deficient mean in this context? Well, it means there's so little information about whether anybody's actually practising these crafts that they may well be gone. And the list includes corn dolly making, Making, shoe last making and tatting, which is a form of lace making. And do you, do you think that there's still an interest in learning some of these forgotten arts? I do, and not just among living history enthusiasts. I think our general attitude to craft in an amateur sense changed during the pandemic yeah, when many more people were at home and looking for new hobbies they could yeah. do by themselves. I think a lot of people do have an interest in trying things out and learning, but there's not a lot of mainstream attention for traditional crafts. Well, definitely not. If, if someone like Beyonce came out and said she really enjoyed hand-carving wooden clogs, <laughs> there might be a bit of a resurgence of widespread interest. So other than that, you know, getting Beyonce on side or some other celebrity, get, getting Stormzy engaged <laughs> yeah, in dear. making corn dollies. Um, <laughs> I would so buy a Stormzy corn dolly. <laughs> how do we fix this problem? Well, the HCA suggests that the issues which affect the viability of certain crafts include a lack of training, right, of course, yeah. an ageing workforce, loss of craft skills due to mechanisation, and I'm sorry to say funding cuts to allied industries. Right, okay. For example, cuts to arts funding mean the loss of orchestras, which affects musical instruments made traditionally, and so forth. And so, 
Which dyeing art are we talking about today? Today we are going to be talking about weaving, the basic principle by which most textiles are made. And this is a subject very close to your heart. Yes, I am an amateur weaver and I love my rigid heddle loom. I find the craft extremely meditative. I enjoy the quiet concentration and the tactile handling of the weaving equipment and yeah. the wool and all the, the things you can create with the colour. So I've chosen to start the series off with that. And so where does weaving rank on this Radcliffe list? Well, weaving is in the green category. So it's classed as currently viable, okay, that's good. which means it's actually in a healthy state and there are sufficient craftspeople to transmit the skill onwards. And so how did you actually learn to weave like would you say the knowledge had been transmitted to you in a traditional way yeah I went to in-person workshops oh. and I also had a friend who was getting very into it and kindly shared her knowledge with me but the rise of the internet has actually also been fantastic for me for learning techniques and so have the suppliers of the actual weaving equipment I mean I learned a lot from the guides which came with my loom for example so tell me about the history of weaving for example how long have human beings been threading threads through other threads to make cloth? <laughs> That's a really good description. I'm sure most people are aware, but weaving is exactly that. The making of a textile by interlacing vertical threads called warps and horizontal threads called wefts at right angles on a frame called a loom. And humans have been doing it for thousands of years. I'm talking 28,000 years ago. No way, yes. 28,000 years? Yeah, there's actually a history of weaving project run by the University of Cambridge's archaeology department, who might possibly have the most interesting job in the world, <laughs> which has traced use of weaving techniques to create plant fibre textiles to the Upper Paleolithic period. How incredible is that? Uh, even Paleolithic Homo sapiens wanted cool threads. <laughs> <laughs> and we still wear woven clothes today, don't we? We do. I'm wearing a linen dress right now, which was definitely woven. And although it was done on an industrial loom capable of producing much more at a much faster rate than hand weaving ever could, the basic principles are exactly the same. It seems as though weaving is one of those really basic survival tools of humanity in a way, along with sort of making fire and cooking and building shelters. Well, and, and I, I think thing. until we embrace naturism as a mass culture, I think it will continue <laughs> to be. So evidence of weaving in ancient civilizations is really well documented and supported by the discovery of artifacts, especially loom weights. Oh, God, they're everywhere, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what this is like elsewhere in the world, but any museum in the UK will probably have a case displaying loom weights, yeah. won't it? Uh, they, these look a little bit like stones with holes in, well, some of them actually are stones with yeah, holes in. Yeah, literally, just that. <laughs> While others are made out of clay. And they were used to weigh down the warp threads on a frame loom to maintain tension so you can weave across. And there are loads dating from Roman Britain and the Saxon period too. And, I mean, I've seen quite a few different versions of looms over the years. So how do early looms look different to what we see today as a modern loom? So they're a lot simpler uh, just a rectangular frame usually which we would call a warp weighted loom yeah. so the sort of the weight of the warp pulls pulls it down yeah and they wove a fixed length of cloth and have had various technological improvements through the centuries yeah, I'm sure. like so very 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 early looms might have needed two people to use to create the sheds that's the gaps through which the threads pass but by the bronze age as early as that, the warp-weighted loom had become quite sophisticated and you could use it by yourself. Okay. So they'd already 
innovated it to include a heddle bar to make the sheds kind of almost mechanically. Well, I think even just the terminology that you're using, for you, it's comfortable stuff. But a person who's never heard of any of these terms before, you know, sheds, for example. <laughs> I know you've just mentioned them, but what are they again? So I don't know why they're called sheds. Yeah. Um, I have always naturally associated them with garden sheds, but I don't think that's at all correct. Yeah, right. Um, it's probably a Saxon term. Those are the gaps created between so the the upper threads and the lower threads. Right. So you pass the thread through them. Okay. I mean, you could do it in a much more laborious way without creating any sheds. You could go over and under, over and under, over okay, and under. Okay, right, with you. Um, but that would take a very long time. Whereas if you lift all the upper threads up to create a gap between the upper threads and the lower threads, you can just pass your thread right through in one swift movement and you've woven a row. Sure, sure. If that makes a bit more sense. And so that kind probably would have been seen in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Saxon Europe and Scandinavia. Yeah, so it's the kind we see in museums often when we're going and looking at the Anglo-Saxon villages and Roman communities. Yeah, and they're England. generally vertical and quite big. You can prop them up against a wall. Well, Eleanor, I can say now, we're not getting one. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> But by the 11th century, <laughs> what what looms we're getting in this house to be discussed at <laughs> a later date. Have any more space for looms. <laughs> looms were starting to be horizontal, and weavers were starting to be organised into guilds. Once weaving had kind of become an urban craft and much more commercial, yeah. rather than a craft practiced purely within the home to clothe and warm the family. So the trade guilds regulated the training an apprentice artisan would have to undertake before being able to call themselves a weaver and also acted as a kind of quality control. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is about guilds, because a lot of people find guilds kind of a romantic idea. But there's also something about them which is a little bit like a mafiosi. Yeah. I'm controlling who's allowed in, controlling access. Mm. So a few problems around guild politics, I think, throughout Definitely. history. Definitely. And I think that sort of regulation of who's even allowed to make cloth, yes. which, as we've discussed, is a kind of basic human need to cover and warm ourselves. And this is particularly interesting because I would naturally associate weaving with women. Mm -hmm. But I definitely associate merchant guilds and city organisations of tradespeople with men. So was weaving for everyone? Well, there's definitely an ancient correlation between weaving and the feminine. Yeah. Especially given as a number of goddesses and supernatural figures are weavers. Sure. So Athena was famously the goddess of weaving and wisdom. Yep who did not care to have her skill in weaving challenged. Well, she didn't like to have her skills challenged in anything, did well, she? Well, no, presumably sword fighting also <laughs> didn't, didn't love that. <laughs> There's a tale of a woman called Arachne yes. who boasted she could weave better than Athena, and so Athena turned her into a spider. Yeah, that's kind of a, a, an accurate reflection of how spiteful Athena could be as a goddess. But talking about Athena, I mean, she's also a goddess of wisdom. And I'm wondering if there is a bit of a connection, perhaps, between weaving and wisdom. Well, it's definitely true that while you're spinning and weaving, you have a lot of time to think things through. So maybe. But you've got to think also there's the three fates as well, aren't there? Yes. And they're yeah, all different 
parts of the weaving process as kind of a metaphor for life. Yeah, yeah. So the fates in Greek mythology were the weavers of fate. Yes. They, they were three, I think they're sisters, yes, aren't they? Yes, that's right. And one spins the thread of life at each person's birth, one measures the thread to see how long the person would live, and one cuts the thread at the end of the life. And presumably they all collaborated on the loom of life together, and weaving the life. Do the Norns in Norse mythology have a similar function to the Fates? Yeah, there's definitely a parallel. And the Norns often get depicted weaving as well as like casting runes or carving runic symbols. Yeah. Actually, Old Norse writing around weaving is so fascinating and is the kind of rabbit hole we could probably all fall down for days. But is there a lot that survives about weaving? so much. Oh, really? Yeah. So Frigg, the wife of Odin, yeah. is supposed to have woven the clouds, mist and fog. Whoa. And she was also known to practice seder, a type of magic which could change fate and was also connected to weaving. Oh, that's very interesting. And there are loads of examples in the sagas of women weaving magic into cloth. Yeah. Course. Either helpful or not so helpful. This, this is something that you do as a matter of course. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and in uh, Orkney Enger Saga, two sisters weave this magic murder shirt, which accidentally kills the wrong person. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they weave this kind of killing shirt, which yes. is intended for an enemy, but then their brother puts it on. And, oh, no. Yeah, it doesn't end too well. But I imagine there's also the opposite, like protective ones. Yeah, so in a big saga there are woundproof shirts which you're meant to wear into battle and they'll protect you but i've got to tell you about one of the most famous pieces of magic weaving it's called the raven banner uh firstly what is that and secondly where can we get one well i think we have to make it ourselves i think i have to make it for you actually Um, basically it's a magical banner which protects you in battle and it appears to be a pure shimmering white until you go into battle and face your foes when a huge black raven magically appears on the fabric and flaps its wings at your enemies and assures your victory. Well, that sounds incredible. Why on earth was magical weaving no longer a thing in society? Like, why have we lost it along the way? (laughs) it's fair to say that that the rise of Christianity in Europe and the suppression of magical weaving are not totally disconnected from uh-huh. each other. <laughs> as early as 1010, it was being preached against and it remained and possibly remains a widespread superstition that you shouldn't say someone's name while working at the loom because their fate would be affected. Oh, this is so interesting as a tradition and also something that had to be preached against, i.e., it was sufficiently real to be feared. Yeah, it was feared enough that these kind of magic shirts could kill people. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> and obviously people still needed clothes, so I guess weaving just needed a bit of a rebrand. Well, is yeah, it saying? did, and that's kind of where the men come in. Oh, okay. Good, those, those rebranding marketing whizzes, the men. <laughs> <laughs> and so by the medieval period, men were definitely weavers. And by the Renaissance, they'd become master craftsmen and women weren't really allowed in the commercial weaver's workshop. Oh, how frustrating. It probably, I mean, if a weaver was working from home, it's possible that his wife might have got involved, but they definitely weren't in the guilds and in the bigger workshops. And it's worth saying that at this point, the techniques which were starting to be used for producing different types of cloth had become so much more advanced. Advanced how? Well, for example, if you think about just the ecclesiastical dress of the Renaissance, which very luckily we have surviving examples. Yeah. Italy in particular was the forerunner in weaving techniques for these incredibly expensive bespoke fabrics with 
loads and loads of stages of labour. Sure. So if you think you've got to cultivate the silkworms, oh, that is time consuming. Process their cocoons to get the silk filaments yes. out. Then yeah. spin the thread. Then mm. clean and dye the thread. Maybe you might wind some silver and gilt strips around the threads to create decorative metal brocade. And then you actually weave the cloth. And then the velvets is a whole other story. Okay, so. I, I kind of know the answer to this, but for a listener's benefit, how is velvet made? Well, velvet is a fabric with a looped pile yes. made of silk thread. And its structure, it still gets created through warp threads. And just to be clear, what do you mean by pile? So a pile is like the depth, the density of the fabric. Okay. And so what do you mean looped pile? So if you can imagine a thread, it gets drawn up through a wire or a little rod to sort of make the loop. Yeah, okay. And then the the wires get removed later. So when you're wearing velvet, the wires are gone. But um, you can, and then you can sort of build up the density. Uh And they might get cut, the loop sometimes get cut, and that can make the velvet denser or not. And designs can also be cut into the pile. So you can have different depths within it to create a design which must have been crazy time-consuming and required a massive amount of thread. So what went wrong? Why don't we do this anymore? Well, the cold hand of progress, really. So in 1785, a man called Edmund Cartwright managed to produce a machine he called a power loom, (laughs) which was operated by a horsepower or a water wheel or a steam engine. And surprisingly, it was three times as fast as weaving using traditional hand methods. See, I know about this because there was a lot of civil unrest surrounding the changes and things brought around by you know, machines like the power loom, with many traditional hand weavers being put out of jobs. And there were, of course, protests by weavers in England and the beginning of the industrial strife, which continued into things like the Luddite movement, yeah, for example. Yeah, yeah, the machine smashing. And and it's fair to say weavers weren't peacefully protesting their no. replacement by a machine and cheap unskilled labour. There were strikes, there yep. were protests, which the cavalry was actually sent out to quell. And yep. even reports of weavers squirting vitriol, which is an acid, yeah. through factory windows and onto the cloth being woven on power looms. Well, of course. And, you you know, you had the Peterloo massacre. Yep. Let's not forget about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, people who listen to the podcast know I'm very interested in Lord Byron and and he actually gave his maiden speech in Parliament in support of the weavers. That's so great. Another reason to love him. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, the power of loom and its antecedents were there to stay. Yeah. We we still have a version of the power loom today. And things only progressed throughout the 19th century. So in 1804, and I think this is probably one of the most amazing innovations possibly ever, Okay. a man called Joseph-Marie Jacquard patented a loom add-on which featured a series of punched cards joined together in a sequence which made it possible to weave much more complex patterns on a loom. And this I know in reference to Ada Lovelace, who is Lord Byron's daughter, who worked with Child Babbage, and they were effectively developing what we today call programming, like computer yeah, programming. Yeah using these punch cards, right? Yeah, exactly. And the analytical engine, which they worked on together, yes. uses exactly the same principles as the Jacquard loom. Oh, fascinating. And so I think I think we're safe to say that weaving is the conceptual precursor of modern computing. Maybe yeah, yeah, even no, so. yeah. AI. 
Yeah, I, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm going to go there. It's the fabric of everything. Oh, nice. Lovely. So I, I find this really, really interesting um, because if you connect it back to Athena and to wisdom and to these ideas of knitting things together, the idea that AI is using the same principles uh, that were used in ancient Greece and, and, and well, you said 28,000 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I think. <laughs> in, in effect, it is just a kind of snowball that is built to a huge place with AI where it's knitting together all of the information it can find and feed on from the whole internet simultaneously, which is terrifying in my It's mind. terrifying, but it's also kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, naturally, I'm interested in the connection between weaving and storytelling. You know, mm. we, we've got phrases like weaving a tail or spinning a yarn, and, and they're very common yeah, in English. Yeah, that's what we say, idioms. isn't it? Yeah, that's spin right. my yarn, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's got to originate with the oral tradition of storytelling. So, I mean, imagine a room full of women with repetitive handcrafts uh, yeah, to do. No Netflix, no Three Ravens podcast. <laughs> of course, storytelling was going to start happening in those spaces. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the language of weaving, which is the activity of the tellers, was bound to find its way into the stories. Mm. And we still, right now, in colloquial language, refer to the thread of a plot, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. And maybe there's even a connection between the word textile and the word text. Oh, I've never even thought about that, but... There must be. But it's Latin, isn't it? So textile yeah. and text. Ooh. Yeah, I bet there's another rabbit hole to fall down there. <laughs> okay, well, this has been really interesting and rather has me wanting to smash machines <laughs> in favour of a return to a hand-woven past. But uh, which dying art are we going to be discussing next time? As weaving is actually relatively mainstream, next time I thought I'd explore a craft which is classed as critically endangered by the Radcliffe Ooh. list. Parchment and vellum making. Oh, that's essential if you're interested at all in illuminating manuscripts. Absolutely. <laughs> in the meantime, if you'd like more lovely bonus content outside of our main episodes, please consider joining our Patreon for only $3 or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast for ad-free episodes, text versions of the stories, special Patreon-exclusive episodes, including Three Ravens Film Club, and our monthly newsletter with spells, tarot spreads, folk customs, and more. And if you're enjoying the podcast and have the time to write us a quick review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it. And if you're a social media raven, we have plenty of chatter on facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast, Twitter at Three Ravens Pod, and Instagram at Three Ravens Podcast. After today's chat, I think I'd better join Threads. <laughs> We've a few threads. <laughs> We've also opened our latest card design competition with the magical theme of the folklore of winter. Yes, yes. So email us your entries at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. And if you also enjoy weaving, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, please. Until next time then, while the threads of our loom have gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Join us next week for another bonus episode, our first Three Ravens Something Wicked. And we'll be back exploring England's historic counties on Monday. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean men With a down, derry, derry, derry down